Now, climate change is a complex and multifaceted problem that needs to be tackled from many different angles. And often the conversation is dominated by the transition away from fossil fuels to renewable sources. But what about the legal system? How can that be used to halt the development of, say, a climate-damaging coal mine? Well, this week we have seen an example of exactly that, uh, where a mining application in a small Australian country town named Bylong has been blocked at the High Court. So what are the opportunities and the limitations of what can be achieved through law? Now, I can't think of a better person to talk us through this topic than uh, Michael Kirby, the Honourable Michael Kirby. And Michael has a distinguished legal career, including being a former Justice of the High Court of Australia. And he is author of a chapter on a book called Sustainability and the New Economics, published by Springer, edited by Stephen Williams and myself. Now, Michael, I don't imagine you're a person with a lot of spare time, and yet you agree to contribute a chapter to this book. I take it that you see climate and environment as a serious issue. Can you talk me through that? Yes, uh, I do see it as a serious issue. For me, it's not the most serious issue. The most serious is nuclear weapons. Unless we uh, can deal effectively by international law and agreement with uh, nuclear weapon control and dismantlement, then we needn't worry too much about all the other issues. So, uh, but getting people to be interested in that and getting people who are lawyers to be interested in it is very difficult because people say, not without cause, uh, what can I possibly do about that? That is a, a political question that has to be dealt with at the highest possible level uh, and uh, mainly by the nuclear weapons states. Uh, who are not so many, who are well identified, and getting them to agree on Ukraine is, as we know, a, a difficult task. So nuclear weapons is the most important, but I would think possibly in my uh, hierarchy, uh, climate change uh, and uh, controlling the interference by humanity in the biosphere and in the climate of the biosphere is uh, probably the second most important and one which ordinary people can see is one that they can contribute to and more and more are doing so. Do you think that the legal approaches to these problems, both weapons and climate and environment, is not sufficiently recognised in the general community? I think it may be recognised, increasingly recognised. People have an instinctive worry about uh, nuclear weapons, um, which is itself uh, a major environmental danger. Uh, but uh, they do have a, a very keen understanding of the importance of climate change because in Australia they have so many examples 
of it uh, coming to bear on the political system, uh, the legal system, and the consciousness of ordinary human beings. So I think uh, you can say that uh, the indifference to climate uh, is over. People uh, of all political persuasions uh, and all backgrounds are increasingly involved in it. Uh, and because of that, cases are arising, legal challenges are arising. And in the way of a system like Australia, a constitutional rule of law system, those uh, challenges may ultimately come before courts and have to be decided by courts, as, for example, the recent case uh, in the High Court of Australia. Well, we'll talk some more about particular examples that you cite in your chapter. But first, I want to go through some of the strengths and weaknesses of a legal approach. We'll kick off with the strengths of using the law to tackle climate change, environment and weapons. Well, the issues of um of climate change. I'll concentrate on that and just park the issue of weapons because my attempt to get uh, colleagues in the International Bar Association to talk about uh, weapons fell uh, flat on its face when we had a, one of our last meetings before the COVID crisis came about. Uh, and uh, the number of lawyers who in Rome turned up at uh, a session which I'd appealed to my colleagues to put on the agenda uh, dealing with uh, nuclear weapons was about 10. You could fill the halls with issues such as international commercial arbitration and um, issues relating to uh, technical and small problems of the law, but getting lawyers to come to a session on climate change was a bridge too far. But you can attract a lot of lawyers uh, to sessions on uh, climate change and uh, its regulation, regulation at the international level uh, as pursuant to the Paris uh, Agreement and pursuant to the Oslo Principles, uh, which I had a part in drafting. You can get lawyers to see that this is something that can be addressed in some cases by the law. Uh, and when it is, the law has a very great advantage in that, at least in a country like Australia, you uh, are pretty sure that what the court will say will be implemented. Um, it may be that politicians will not, because it's so controversial or has... Um, so many different viewpoints, uh, it might not get enabling legislation easily from the political process. But if it's there uh, and if it can be invoked, it has the great advantage of implementation because in a country like Australia, normally the orders and the reasoning of courts will be given effect. 
Do you have a sense of why there was a lack of motivation for lawyers to get more involved? Was it because you think maybe they don't take climate change seriously or do they see other limitations to the law as to that it was less likely to be successful or maybe some other reason? I think you can probably divide the law roughly between uh, the timorous souls and the bold spirits. That's what Lord Denning said. And there's a lot of truth in what uh, he said. A lot of lawyers are quite cautious by nature. Uh, They are not great proponents of reform, which means change. Uh, They appear... Uh, for uh, interests which are well-moneyed and which pay uh, the lawyers their fees, which are very substantial. And therefore, um, you're looking to small community groups, so-called civil society, to uh, propagate and pursue legal solutions in courts of law. Um, And so this is... Uh, this is really, I think, the basic problem with lawyers being involved. A subsidiary problem is that uh, largely by reason of the controversy of uh, climate change, at least until very recent times, and whether it is a problem susceptible uh, to legal change that will have any uh, significant effect. When you come to that, Um, There haven't been so many hooks on which uh, practising lawyers can um, hang a legal case. Uh, And it has taken um, international law developments uh, to create awareness, but it's also taken the development of local law that will give a lawyer an opportunity to bring a a proceeding. For example, take sexuality and the issues we've lately had in the federal parliament about uh, the Religious Freedoms Act. Um, I was asked to take part in a webinar about the Australian Constitution and homosexuality, a matter that concerns me because of my sexuality. Um, But unlike most other countries, we don't have a Bill of Rights in our Constitution. We don't even have a statutory Bill of Rights, which is enforceable by the people in uh, the federal courts. Uh, uh, We have some sub-national charters of rights, but we don't have the weaponry. You see, uh, in many countries, issues such as we've had in the last week or so relating to the Religious Freedoms Bill now postponed, um, would be dealt with by a direct appeal. People would go straight or as quickly as possible to the final court. And the final court would then measure uh, the uh, law that was being proposed uh, or the law as enacted against the standards of uh, of the Charter of Rights or Bill of Rights. Because Australia didn't have that, we don't have that um, hook We don't have that um, method of bringing the matter before the courts. And therefore, we require 
um, legal imagination to find the hooks on which to hang the legal arguments uh, and uh, the lawyers who are willing to take uh, a, d- a degree of risk and a degree of cost risk uh, of bringing the proceedings before the courts, given that in our legal system in Australia, um, it's a principle of uh, loser pays. If you lose the case, and it may be a very big case, and it may be a case that goes on appeal and further appeal, then uh, you or your client will have to foot the bill. And that is itself a conservatising uh, principle that has, tends to um, stop. Well, I would like to cases. drill more into the opportunities for using the legal system to tackle environment problems such as climate change. But first, I want to run an idea by you that has been on my mind for many years, and that is I have a scientific orientation, so I use scientific principles when I approach a problem. My system of thinking is scientifically oriented. But when you talk to a parliamentarian, a politician, or maybe to a legal person, the framework in which they use to approach a problem is fundamentally different. So that would emphasise the system of argument just from didactics, from logic, whereas science is really evidence-based and looking for always trying to disprove the theory. Do you think there's any truth in that? Would you have any comments on uh, how you see that? Well, I'm not really competent to do a psychoanalysis of yourself <laughs> and and why you've uh, got this uh, little problem of evidence and, and uh, a scientific approach to issues. It isn't true to say that the law uh, is not interested in uh, the um, scientific evidence. It It's very interested in the scientific evidence if there is a legal foundation for the proposition that is being advocated in a court. Uh, That's where bills of rights are so important because they're written in uh, very general language and that general language, expressions uh, such as uh, uh, human dignity um, and uh, human freedoms, uh, and uh, rights to privacy uh, and rights to equality, all of those are very broad notions and they give you a, a, an entry into the legal system. And that's how in many countries, indeed most countries, big issues of constitutional rights are dealt with in courts. Uh, yeah. In Australia, we don't have that mechanism and therefore things go to the political process where there is often the resistance to um, yeah. uh, issues because they're, they're controversial and well in and they uh, affect October in, in October last year the United Nations Human Rights Council passed a resolution that recognized access to a healthy and sustainable uh, environment is a universal human right is that's something that we should have in Australia. A Bill of Rights in Australia would include that. Or do we inherit it implicitly through international obligations? Well, uh, we inherit the international obligations so long as Australia has signed on to them. 
uh, and uh, if Australia has signed on to them, uh, even then they may not be implemented in the courts to the conclusion that is a binding rule of the court that has to be ordered uh, unless uh, Parliament has made it part of the law of Australia. Uh, that uh, is not a problem in countries that have a Bill of Rights because that is part of the law of the land. But in a country like Australia, you can't say that just because the Paris Climate uh, Platform or other international principles such as the Oslo principles are adopted by UN bodies, that that will necessarily uh, be implemented as part of our law if somebody takes it to court. Um, uh, in a, a, a leading case in the Australian High Court when I was serving there, a case called Al-Kateb against Godwin, I said that even if Parliament hasn't implemented uh, the law as part of Australian law, a judge can look to these international principles in order to help fashion the common law. And that was basically what happened in the Mabo case. The key that unlocked the door to recognition of Aboriginal native title in Australia, 150 years uh, late, was uh, the fact that, uh, as Justice Brennan said, the one principle of international human rights law that is universal to the nations of the world is that you can't discriminate against people on the grounds of their race. One could also say that the one principle that is uh, universal in human rights is that as humans, we live on this tiny blue planet and unless we do something, uh, we will be bombarded by terrible crises uh, in our climate, and therefore we have that in common in our basic humanity and in the survival of our species. But getting people to agree on that and getting judges to look to the international principles if Parliament has not made them part of the law is the problem. And uh, that problem won't go away because uh, good people of goodwill like yourself and my, myself think it should. We've got to see is there a law that can be invoked now, that will make a, a, a basis for a court order I, I think it's pretty clear from your comments that uh, if uh, someone's listening to our conversation now were to agitate their politicians to make changes to the law uh, that you would say a bill of rights is very high on that list but are there other things that uh, people should be uh, agitating for? Uh, well, um, apart from a Bill of Rights, which is a very big ask, the notion of having a Bill of Rights in Australia was proposed in the 1890s when they were drafting the Australian Constitution, and it was rejected by the founding fathers, and they were all fathers, um, it was rejected because it was thought that was not the British way to deal with things. The British way to deal with problems was to take the problem to Parliament and Parliament would act sensibly and rationally and would implement uh, a, a law that would uh, fix the problem. Now, I was chairman of the Law Reform Commission of Australia for 10 years, and I can tell you from my experience 
though Parliament often will, in technical, purely technical matters, implement uh, law reform proposals, it is much more problematic where a proposal has, for example, very serious political or economic uh, or social consequences, like uh, equality for transgender people or homosexuals or like climate change with its potential impact on employment uh, of people in coal mines. So these are controversial. But if you look at the issues that are now lining up for uh, the forthcoming 2022 uh, federal election, it does appear that climate change is definitely emerging as an issue that may well have shifted. The base may well have shifted because of the growing evidence of extreme climate events and the growing belief uh, by the public of the scientists who say we have to do something and even the growing willingness of courts uh, without a Bill of Rights and without even a specific statute to deal with the issue under the general capacity of the common law made by the judges to adapt to the problems of the time and the needs of the time. Okay. Let's let's talk about corporations now because some big businesses are beginning to recognise the risks of climate change and there are direct risks to the economy but also risks from uh, litigation. Can you talk me through that? Uh, well, this is something that's dealt with in some detail in my um my uh, chapter in the Springer book, uh, because it has emerged as a result in part uh, of civil society in different parts of Australia, uh, effectively saying, take a look at the Corporations Act. And in the Corporations Act, there is a provision uh, that pre-existed climate change that was part of corporations law when it was one of the earlier um, companies acts that we had when I was at law school. Uh, and it says that directors uh, must act in the best interests of the corporation and the shareholders. And so the question became, um, in today's world, with the knowledge we now have about um, uh, the importance of climate change, would a director of an Australian corporation be uh, failing in his or her duty to the corporation and the shareholders if they ignored the risks of climate change of any of the operations of the company. And that question was sent by uh, a number of interested civil society organisations to uh, top barristers, and one of them, uh, Mr. Noel Hutley, who was a former president of the New South Wales Bar Association, uh, with a colleague, wrote a very powerful and well-reasoned uh, opinion in which he said, well, they may not have thought about this when they passed the Corporations Act, but that isn't an answer to the question. The answer is, do the words of the corporations law apply so that 
a, a failure by company directors to, to address the issue of the climate change implications of what they do in the corporation would be uh, a personal breach of their uh, obligation under the corporation's law to act in the best interests of the shareholders and the corporation on the basis that unless they do act in the best interest of the corporation, they will have a big problem hanging around their heads in uh, a decade or so. Uh, and uh, as with tobacco uh, uh, production and aluminium production, uh, they will be liable, sometimes personally liable, for their failure to act when they yeah. were directors of relevant corporations. So that's the big issue in that right. respect. We are running to the end of our first chunk of time. Are there any particular topics that you want to address that we haven't touched on yet? Well, I would mention uh, Justice Preston, uh, the Chief Judge of the Land and the Environment Court. You see, one good thing that was done in New South Wales, it was done by Neville Rann, who had a great interest in the environment, an uh, early political uh, devotee to the environment. And he set up this specialised court uh, which has to make environmental decisions all the time. That, that's what it's called, the Land and Environment Court. Uh, and uh, many of them are not specifically relevant to climate change. Some of them are relevant to koala inhabitants uh, of our biosphere. But some of the decisions uh, get to a point of judicial decision where it is important to consider the impact of the decision on climate. Uh, and uh, this occurred in New South Wales in a case called Gloucester Resources uh, and the Minister. And that case came before Justice Preston, who is a very impressive and intelligent and experienced judge uh, with this special responsibility. And he said that in the case of decisions uh, of establishing coal mines in uh, a place in New South Wales, that would not only have a deleterious effect on the environment uh, and its beauty, but could have a contribution to uh, the uh, inability of Australia to meet its climate change obligations mm. under the developing understanding of international law. And right. so that was that was a very forward-looking decision. Gloucester Resources, uh, you can Google it and see it. Uh, that wasn't appealed, and therefore it had to await another case in which the effect of the International Paris Agreement uh, would be considered, uh, by, including by the High Court of Australia, but by other courts. Lawyers must be aware of these developments and lawyers must play a leading part in advising their clients uh, and getting them to be more environmental savvy and more environmental protective. Well, that's, that's, we... that's, a good, that's a good thought, Michael. We're clean out of time now and thank you very much for your time. It's an honour to speak with you today. Well, it's a pleasure. 